Welcome to the Gorilla Pastors Podcast. I'm your host, Josiah. After our roundtable episode last week, we are revisiting conversations with traditional Sunday morning pastors. Our hope is to get their reaction and feedback to the things that we are doing, this entire Gorilla Pastoring ethos founded on subversive presence. We hope to gain not only feedback, but insight from pastors who have been doing ministry successfully and for a very long time. While we may critique this one-size-fits-all ministry model that focuses on a Sunday morning worship gathering, our intention is not to end the Sunday morning-focused church, but to instead broaden the horizons of would-be pastors and laypeople to all of the things possible within a broad kingdom imagination. Join us as we engage our second traditional church pastor, a pastor by the name of David Rhodes, on the Gorilla Pastors Podcast. What I noticed was that Christians could not have conversation with each other if they disagreed with one another. It's all about entering in to the textured presence of lived lives. And so the, the sanitation of it just broke for me. Like, church can't be sanitized. I always feel like I'm not what people think of when they think of a pastor. I went to school for youth ministry and have now figured out how to do like construction work. It's good, good stuff. The church is struggling and declining in ways that we've never experienced in the United States and Canada right now. We have to like allow ourselves to embrace new ways of being in a place. Insurgent revolutions, i.e. guerrilla warfare, is 20% bullets and 80% blessing the people. How do we be eternally faithful? Like literally, like how do we be faithful in a way today that in 20 years, people aren't going, he was evil. Why are we so afraid? We believe that God is at work in all places, in all people, at all times. That is amazing and that should give us hope. We are the Gorilla Pastors. Join us as we explore a world of ministry founded on subversive presence. On this episode, we have the privilege and honor to sit down with our second of three Sunday morning-focused traditional church pastors. This week, our guest hails yet again from the great Pacific Northwest and has been doing ministry here and in general for quite some time. To give a little bit of context and to not let the cat out of the bag, let's just say he has been pastoring for longer than I have been alive. And while some of the younger generations might see this as a slight against him, I would say that in this case, that stereotype and assumption could not be further from the truth because today's guest is clearly a lifelong learner seeking to better and better follow Jesus with all that he is. Despite pastoring a church that is on the larger side for our denomination, he is not a self-assured know-it-all whose ego fills up a room. After recording this interview, he took me to lunch, and he even took the time to remind our waitress, who he has an established relationship with, that he had been praying for her. 
And while I could go on, let's hear from our guest. Yeah, hi, I'm uh, David Rhodes, pastor of the Puyallup Church of the Nazarene uh, in Puyallup, Washington. To start off the interview, I asked him to give us a little bit of the history of his personal ministry and the history of his church as well. Yeah, so I've been uh, here for 22 years, and uh, 22 and a half years actually, it's gone pretty fast, but when I think about how the story's unfolded, it's just not the same church in a number of ways uh, throughout that whole 22 years. Been very much morphing, changing in so much. Um, yeah, this is my fourth church to pastor. Uh, next, um, next May, I will complete 50 years of ministry uh, in uh, the church as a lead pastor. Lead pa- so have you been a lead pastor at three other churches? Yeah, then? three other churches, right. Where, can you give us a little place real quick where those were at? Just yeah, I cut, cut my teeth in uh, southern Idaho in uh, Mormon country. Okay. And then I uh, went to Southern California for 10 years and then um, Eastern Washington for 13 and a half and then here. Have you been a so. uh, lead pastor the entirety of your pastoral ministry? Yeah, the entirety. Yeah. Did you go to undergraduate and then seminary and then I did, man. I just did the full traditional way. You went to school right into leading a church. Right into leading a church, which I was uh, falsely understood. I knew what I I was doing. (laughs) (laughs) There's there's an assumption, right, that you go to school and you're prepped for all of the things that you're going to have to face. Yeah, I remember the time I was, uh, it dawned on me uh, that, uh, man, they didn't teach me this. It's kind of a, a funny and a sad story at the same time. Actually, it turned out to be a wonderful story. I was pastoring in a church in Southern California, and uh, uh, during, during, right in the middle of the service, I, 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 you know, I sniffed and I smelled cigarette smoke, and, and I looked down on a fourth row. Uh, Kathy had lit up a cigarette on the fourth row, sitting right next to one of the grand old saints of the church. And it was like a Roman, uh, it was like a Norman Rockwell picture where she was just kind of like uh, the elderly saint was just looking in horror at Kathy sitting next to her, puffing on her cigarette. <laughs> and then Kathy got up uh, while some little children were singing a little special at the front uh, of the church and came and sat down on the platform and just continued to smoke and i thought okay nobody tell me what to do about this <laughs> uh, anyway we made it and and great news is that uh about a um a month later after some uh tri- trip into mental health uh kathy uh, came back and was wonderfully loved by the church but man that was like are you kidding me <laughs> there's so many sermon illustrations there there's so many conversations that could be had just about what is what is the purpose of the church, right? What are we doing? Absolutely. So, so I, I, I'm going to go down a rabbit hole if I'm not careful. So already. Um, let's go back, though. I want to ask you a little specific uh, question about why here. This podcast is currently kind of focused on ministry in the Pacific Northwest. Um, we assume, and, and we have some reasons why, but we're not going to pretend we know everything, that ministry in the Pacific Northwest is going to be a little more unique than maybe some of the other spots that you you mentioned, and there's something to this place that might even force creativity uh, just out of, as a necessity. But how did you come here, and have you experienced Pacific Northwest ministry as being slightly different than the other places you've been? Well, I've been mostly in the West most of the time, but over the period of all these years, the church has changed like a great deal, like 
you know, its standing in the culture has changed. Mm -hmm. It's, um, you know, the, the methodologies, strategies, the way you relate, the way you talk about yourself, the way you as a church are even understood. And I think, uh, you know, what was true for the Pacific Northwest probably uh, pre-2016 you know, or, or 20 um, changed even a great deal uh, during that time. So, and particularly, I think, in the Northwest, right, how we are uh, perceived, what we think are our, um, I don't know, our points of relevance to the culture in the culture's eyes around us. I mean, so in the Northwest, I mean, to me, uh, I've just known it so much. I've seen it evolved. You're kind of a part of it. And so you either decide you're going to stay and try to figure this out or you're going to leave. Mm -hmm. And what I saw, like, you know, even in the last few years of what I would call, I've, I've called moving to other states, moving to other planets. And I've said, <laughs> I've never seen so much intergalactic travel in all my <laughs> life. But, uh, and most of the statements are, I can't wait to get out of this place because, like, I want to be with people who think like I do. And I have thought, and I've said a number of times, I says, well, what if you were leaving the hard place and you ran into Jesus who was running into the hard place? Yeah. I think there's something very special about place and uh, your awareness that, well, maybe the preference that we sometimes have as members of this church thing, whether you want, there's so many labels you could attribute to evangelical or just Christian or, you know, Nazarene, whatever the case may be. I think for a long time, as a whole, we, we lulled ourselves into thinking we sort of set the tone for culture or we should, you know, control the culture. So then there's this tendency to only go where, you know, there, there are folks that think like us so we can kind of call the shots and that's the way God wanted it. But the story of the Bible kind of paints a different story for, for God's people. And it's normally that they're foreigners in a foreign land. And, and sometimes there's a great cost to following Jesus, which is why mm -hmm. so much of what we're kind of wrestling with is that tension between how do you remain faithful in a, in a place that could perceivably be uh, seeing you as less and less relevant or even openly hostile towards some of the things that you're doing um, alongside of the, how, how do you remain faithful with the temptation that we see sometimes in, in even the spots we've been in? There's a very famous podcast that, that was known for this, uh, the, the temptation to be the cultural warrior and to fight those culture wars even harder. So like the, the temptation is there to sort of try to claim culture back or to try to fight for influence and power to try to do this as opposed to simply remaining faithful and, and embodying the gospel and having presence even in a place that might not really understand or care or actively dislike who they think that you might be. So for 22 years, sounds like you've seen that change happen and it's especially rapidly happened lately. Mm. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that, um, the whole matter of just presence, I mean, you guys have used uh, the phrase, you know, in guerrilla pastors as far as, uh, I mean, I like, I like subversive presence. I, I actually do really like that. I've been, I've been reading a, a book entitled, uh, a subversive witness. And the whole thing is learning how to, leverage privilege into the service of others right and so i think um yeah i mean it, it's all changed a great deal and i think how we're present is is huge i mean we can decide that we can think it's a cultural war 
but maybe there's another way of thinking about it. Um, I, I do think there's spiritual battle. I have, I have no doubt that there's spiritual battle, and I think that in our prayers we need to engage uh, for for people that are are finding themselves like enslaved in any number of ways, right? And so I think there's a battleground aspect to it. But also like what uh, a speaker I heard several years ago, um, speaking at a gathering of nonprofits in Seattle, he talked about, well, what if, what if, the, what if is it, it, this isn't just um, the, the battleground, what if it is also the Holy Spirit's playground? What if it's a place where the Holy Spirit is at play all the time and bringing about, you know, really uh, good things in people's lives that don't even yet know him and how he is? you know, just really speaking into their lives. And what if pervenient grace is actively at work here? Dude, I just think that our understanding of pervenient grace is like so powerful. My, my brother had a, an experience. He, he was uh, going back uh, to do some post-PhD um, work uh, at Manchester, and he, um, Manchester, England, and he, he was on this, uh, he was on a double-decker bus called the Magic the magic bus and it was uh it was taking a bunch of students uh, to to the university and he was just on that and and he had this he told me he had this reflection and he thought he just kind of like said out loud to god you know i wonder how many i wonder how many people here know you he was saying and and he heard uh just deep down inside the holy spirit say to him i'm in conversation with every person on this bus mm. Some are listening, some are not yet. Some are responding, some are not yet. Some know it's me, some don't know it's me. But I'm in conversation with every person on this bus. And I thought that was just like incredible understanding of prevenient grace, which uh, just gives us this wonderful freedom yeah. <laughs> to, uh, as, as, you, as you guys have talked about in some other podcasts, but uh, to be able to just, you know, be, be people that are pointing out the truth, pointing out where it is, pointing out where God is at work, and identifying, you know, uh, how the kingdom is showing up, even in quiet, subtle, but maybe embryonic ways, but nonetheless, it's happening, and the Holy Spirit's at work. We've pointed out or named some things that could be perceivable criticisms of institutional efforts, I suppose, uh, and that's one of the things, you know, that that we could be perceivably critical of is that there has been a tendency or we felt the pressure or the training or the mentorship to sort of try to assume that grace is, is experienced and practiced and received when we are in control, calling the shots on a Sunday morning or what have you. And that, um, you know, there's the sacred space and everything around us is the secular, maybe God forsaken. And so that, that perception of being critical of a Sunday morning effort is part of why I've wanted to talk to pastors that have spent so much time in that space, because what we're actually trying to nuance and articulate is that it's, it's a both and, and they can be beautiful, but when you make it about one or the other, that's where the problem entails. If you make it, church can only look like, pastoring can only look like, it's a one size fits all, it's only this. If you make it, um, church can only happen if you... I think we referenced this in in one of our previous podcasts, the Kevin Costner Field of Dreams. If you build it and they will come. That's the only way church can happen is you have to build a building. You have to make sure it's the biggest one in town. And that's the only way to do church. That's the fundamental issue that we have is that that that's the only way to do church. That's the only tract for pastoring that the, as we have been taught, as we have kind of 
actually rejected as of late as well. As we've kind of gone on in our careers as pastors, the understanding was the pinnacle of pastoral ministry is to be a lead pastor of a big church like yours, right? Like that is the goal. If you are successful, if you're a good pastor, that's where you get. And we've sort of since lamented that we don't really agree with that anymore. Like that's great for those that that are able to embody that pastoral ministry is uh, as a, a faithful um, representation of their calling. But is that a is that a thing every pastor should um, aspire to be? So in these conversations and in these perceivable critiques, uh, again, part of what we're wanting to do is is get a sense for is this actually a threat? Are we actually um, are we actually critiquing to the point of being threatening to the established traditional Sunday morning church? Is this something that ruffles your feathers if you hear us talking about these things? So that's part of what I want to sit down and ask you. Um, and I know you did listen to some of them. So how did, how did you respond to some of the things we talked about being the embodiment of guerrilla ministry as, as a pastor that has had a long storied career in, in the church that we could perceivably be critical of? Yeah, so I it was with interest that I started listening, and um, you know I I, I really like um, the um, subversive presence uh, description. Your gorilla, as a, because I was raised in the '60s and in college during the Vietnam War, guerrilla warfare has a strong thing where you know I mean I was, I mean I was. I don't. I don't tell this a lot to a lot of the the vets in our church, but I had to. I had to lead moratoriums against the war on the college campus to be a part of that. I mean, there was like all kinds of, of pressures and and kind of mitigating between two groups and and all that. So guerrilla, I I had to really like stretch to try to. Okay, I don't have an affinity for the phrase, but. I, but subversive presence, I do. And so when I understand what you're saying by gorilla, then I, yeah, that's, that's not a, it's not a problem. It is a problem though, because it does mean that there needs to be a presence and it is subversive and it's subversive to what, right? So, I mean, I respond, I mean, I respond actually in the sense that, no, we need to have the dialogue. We need, if we don't, then we just end up with groupthink and we just, um, you know, end up just trying to do uh, the same way, just maybe polish it up a little bit. So, I mean, here's what really impacts me coming out of uh, of COVID. Right in, kind of in the middle of COVID, uh, a, a really new guy to our area, pastor in a Lutheran church um, in the in the nearby town, calls me up and. Um, he says, Dave, I need to talk. I go, okay. He says, and this guy's about 35 years old. And he says, um, I discovered that I have a lot less disciples of Jesus than I thought I had. And I have a lot less leaders than I thought I had. And I think that's sort of the statement about coming through all of this. We thought we were making disciples in the model of listen to the sermon, even go to a small group, other things like that. And and, and we actually, um, yeah, maybe we weren't making as many or, yeah, it was a, it was a bit of a, uh, it was a really good wake up call. It was important. So I think addressing that and looking at what does it mean 
and how would how did Jesus make disciples is is really huge. So I'm happy for the conversation. I think we ought to think. I think we ought to think critically, and and love generously, both in this. When I was uh, last a lead pastor, it was in the the thick of COVID, and it's almost the exact same revelation. I was talking to other pastors in the area, and it dawned on all of us that I think folks were more discipled by their preferred news station or their social media feed than they were the actual Bible or Jesus, for that matter. And it was sobering to think of all that time and energy, because, you know, I, I then naturally went to, I spent a lot of time on crafting these sermons, and are they actually as effective as uh, we thought they were? But it goes back to something that you said, and I would like to hear um, your thoughts on it. What is it that, that the subversive presence is subverting? Is it subverting um, a model of discipleship? Is it subverting culture? Is it subverting the inst- I mean, what do you see as um, the best effort in, in what it is subverting? What should we be subverting if you're appreciating that dialogue and conversation? Yeah, I mean, that's a... Obviously, you ask good questions. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good question. Um, I think that, like, we in evangelical, quote-unquote, evangelical Christian America, I've said this, use this phrase before, this has been, like, kind of my favorite phrase coming from all this that I observed and I feel hopefully learned is that for the most part we have the we have a gospel of Jesus without the Jesus of the gospels so we pretty much you know and and people believe the bible they say but actually we we don't believe the bible we believe our interpretation of the bible and so there's a degree of uh humility that all of us need to have and we we come to try to discuss what any of this is so i mean i just think it's uh, i was in a conversation with a a friend of mine not not too long ago and that that really covid the political the racial everything that has been this tsunami that's kind of come through which is i think is a gift uh from god to us should uh should have uh like like thrown us all back in the kindergarten uh in regard to the things that we think we know and uh, just just help us re-examine and look at it. So for me, I mean, just uh, a couple of things on subversive. I think subversive, like if it has its goal as life, then it's really an awesome thing. So to me, to be subversively present in my neighborhood, uh, in in the schools around us, in in all of the ways in which we're touching the community. It, it means to be present with them, not for how it will benefit us, but how it can benefit them. Um, that's one piece. Um, the other piece means that we lead with um, a profound um, value of each individual life that we're around, neighbors or the schools or the, you know, that the, the community that's in facing shelter or food insecurity, that we're, we're with them, not as saviors, but as um, people who just serve and offer and, and just care deeply about them. And we'll do it 
uh, whether or not they show up at our place. So that the whole idea is not that they show up at our places, but that we are showing up at their place with, you know, good hearts and kind of like the Jesus of the Gospels would do, right? Imagine that. <laughs> it Imagine sounds, that. It sounds like you've processed this with different language for a while now, since at least COVID, probably before. It's probably been an undercurrent in your pastoral career and your philosophy of ministry for a while. So I wonder if if just how we have phrased things, if it's it's not necessarily been perceived as a threat to you, it doesn't seem like. Um, would you say that it's helped frame, like, I'm trying to be subversive in this way and, and how my presence is the focus and not can I count them as, as someone sitting on, on a seat in a Sunday morning? Has there been things that you've started to, to see as, oh, yeah, I think we are actually, without naming it this, trying to offer some sort of subversive presence as part of what this church is doing in this context, in this place? And I can't say that, Puyallup. I never say it right. Yeah, Puyallup. Right. Yeah. Okay. Has there been has there been things that you've started to say? Yeah, I think that is actually it, it, we would we would be able to call that a subversive endeavor uh, to try to be present and value life um, for the sake of you know this gospel thing that Jesus called us to to embody. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, yeah, I mean, definitely. Um, I think we've only scratched the surface though, and I think. Um, There's, there's just so, so much. Um, so one thing was, uh, you know, I'd read, uh, I'd read a book sometime back on uh, just kind of that coined the word glocalization, but it all had the idea, you know, of being local and global, but it also had to do with having a transformative presence in your neighborhood and in your community. So um, we, we had started, uh, we had, God had favored a relationship with an elementary school in our area, and then two, and then three. Uh, and uh, one, um, one Easter, I was just trying to think how do we how do we really serve them like in in a, even a better way? And uh, and 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 it turned out that we just made a special Easter offering, and we said we're gonna we have a goal of ten thousand dollars we want to raise for this elementary school. And uh, we want to we want to give it to them uh, with no strings attached whatsoever, so they can use it to 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 uh, care for uh, the the kids uh, in the school who are um, struggling with poverty, and so and so that Easter there was seventeen thousand dollars were raised, and and I, then I went to the school and said, here this is. We have a $17,000 account for you to use however you wish, and you don't have to ask us for permission, and you don't have to pass it through us. It's yours. And um, and so we did that, and over the next five uh, or six years, we raised for that school and a couple of others about you know $65,000 uh, at Easter to give to them. And there's still money in those accounts that they haven't used it all up, and they are still, and it still comes in. And, mm. And so, but but the, and then but the point was that interesting. Um, and then when some other churches around us kind of saw that we had this relationship with this school, says, "Well, we'd like to help." And so, as we started unpacking this, uh, their kind of their agenda was a little bit, 
hey, we'd like to help you with this. Can we advertise our VBS at your at your school? Yeah. And I just I just told him I said don't do that because it's that makes it about you. So stop it. <laughs> well, that's the question I was going to ask. Is I think I've heard stories like this, and what makes it subversive is. I'm assuming you didn't advertise service times. You didn't like make it all about, hey, please come so I can count you. We, as did, my- we, did, we did nothing of the sort. And, uh, you know, and then the, interestingly enough, I mean, we would have done this if this didn't happen, but, you know, summer is really an insecure time for kids who have un- unstable homes. And so... Um, and the, so the food program or the structure of school is, is a safety yeah. thing. And so, uh, so the principal then started, but the principal who did not, you know, doesn't, didn't like church or anything and, and who, um, likes church even less now, <laughs> but loves our church. Uh, she, um, started saying, Hey, um, could we send some kids uh, to your camps because they need places to go? And so that started happening. And but it was not. It was just. It was just the advancement of the kingdom. And it was, yeah. yeah. So that was one of the illustrations of it. So I love that so much because some of the the motivation for us is the conviction to actually embody a gospel in, in a way that actually is transformative. Um, it shares the love of Christ with others, especially those that just need it, and that it's a holistic endeavor, too, that it says something about suffering, right? Like, it has something to say about what you're experiencing r- right here and right now, about your body, that it's not just, well, one day you'll be in heaven, and this is, you know, we don't have to worry about what's happening here and now. Um, but some of the tenets, you know, and I, I think you've probably listened to this, it's so interesting to me. We, we've talked about what we want Gorilla Ministry to focus on, Broad kingdom imagination, namely just the end-all be-all, is not how many people show up on a Sunday morning. Like It's bigger than that. Um, Sunday morning shouldn't be abolished. We, we never say that. We do say that if it's not you know, focused on how to equip folks, then maybe we should evaluate some of that stuff. And how effectively we're equipping them, which you already brought up, is a worthy con- conversation to have. But then you're also doing another <laughs> guerrilla pastor thing, benevolent orthodoxy. Like, you're not having to market that you're Christian. You're just being a Christ follower, and people are taking notice and want to know more. And there's something, yeah. and it goes back to the whole how beautiful is provenient grace that it actually does draw folks closer to their creator, even if they don't fully understand that that might be what's actually yeah. taking place. Absolutely. And then our final one, and this is really part of what I would love to dig in deeper with you, because I think this is what could be perceived as threatening to the current paradigm for pastoring, is celebrating diverse praxis. Um, and so if, if me and my co-hosts say we want to pastor in this way, but the current structures that are in place don't afford space for that, then it's sort of a, you have to do it anyways. And that could be perceived as rebellious or you know threatening or, or whatever the case may be. But what I find um, refreshing is that if the motivation still is on that subversive presence piece of trying to embody grace mm-hmm. of trying to even like be an agent of change or like spreading provenient grace and all, all of the stuff that you could name that um it if it's accomplishing the same mission and goal like you're already mentioning about the whole coming through 2020 shouldn't we be thinking through this stuff right now like isn't this the time ripe for consideration for how are we doing this pastor thing 
How can we do it better? Are we actually doing it as, as well as we could be? Is the gospel not worth doing our best by it? Um, and so that's the conversation that I really want to have. I already had it with Pastor Craig. I'm going to have it with another pastor. I'm still getting permission to do that. But it's interesting because for Pastor Craig, you know, he had some thoughts about, but yeah, you know, it, even he went to a place of, and I, I felt bad. I wasn't trying to, to make him feel this way. I was like, it, we even need to start asking ourselves, are we spending too much time prepping for a Sunday morning and not enough time with presence in our neighborhoods? And so there's obviously a time and place for different pastors to have different roles, but that's where this diversity thing comes into play. And especially through COVID, I was convicted by watching my wife just get chewed up and spit out because either she was part of some sort of crazy conspiracy because she was saying COVID was real or it, it is real and she was being under-equipped, right? They didn't even have enough pr- protection for her. So she was worried about bringing it home to our kids and mm-hmm. to me. And that was part of the um, complication for me being a lead pastor. Um, but the beauty of the hospital being able to sort of weather the storm, so to speak, and, and still we're, we're still facing such shortages in the medical space. You got a doctor, you got a nurse, you got a respiratory therapist, you got a nutritionist, you got an x-ray tech, you got a CNA, you got the housekeeping, you got a team of people with very specific roles. And the goal is the same, better patient care. And so if we kind of utilize that sort of metaphor or philosophy of ministry, to understand, and this is something Pastor Craig said, and I would love to get your take on it. He, he said one of the only, and I wouldn't say he said only, one of the good things from the church growth model is that you know who you can reach. There is something beneficial from church growth uh, trainings. Who is the, the, the group of folks you're going to actually be able to reach? But if we take that to its uh, natural end, are we completely and totally missing how we can minister to some? Because we have created a one-size-fits-all approach to ministry. What do you think? No, I mean, that's, uh, that's absolutely, absolutely true. I think it also, um, just on a diverse praxis, uh, I think you can't have one-size-fits-all anymore. <laughs> Not that you ever could, but it's just... Especially if you're going to try to bring salt and light into the places that are not um, even remotely interested in you or what you bring. Uh, Although I would say we live in a beautiful day where, at least here in the Pacific Northwest, there's there's a lot of value given to kindness. There's a lot of value given to uh, uh, doing good, caring about the um, environment. Um, you know, um, caring about um, you know equity and so forth. So, I think you know one of the things that we can do in that I think it's not only affecting how you pastor, what it means to be a pastor, or one size fits all there, but it even goes to this uh, dualism that we have in terms of even laying clergy and saying, well, if you really want to be spiritual, then you get called into full-time Christian ministry. And if not that, then settle for something at least where you can be used by God in, in some way. But it's not the best, right? Uh, that's kind of been inadvertently communicated. And um, 
I, I, I'm really appreciate a, a periodical that comes out now that I'm reading called The Common Good. It's um, it's just has about to do has to do with Monday morning discipleship and the value of the sacred space of work where people are and uh, how they how how we just bring you know the goodness of of God into those places. And I think you don't have to come to church to do church ministry to be the body of Christ and accomplish the advancement of the kingdom of God in where you are. And I think the second thing is is that. Um, we just really need to affirm the value of these many different ways of of approaching it. I mean, I think if I'm understanding the premise right, it's not just an either or, but it's really meant to be like, is there room for, and I would say, yeah, there's not only should be and needs to be room for, but there needs to be like a lot of dynamic give and take and pure learning at this point. Well, to go back to the metaphor to to help clarify, and this is a perception probably from maybe Hollywood or something, or maybe it is actually a perception with those that work with them. The ultimate caregiver is the doctor in, in a lot of, and so we could say the lead pastor or even higher up mm-hmm. leadership. In the but really, like, the doctor can't do what they do without the nurse or without the respiratory therapist or the x-ray tech or this, the, you know, and so on and so forth. And it's a team effort. And so it is a both end. Like the doctor is crucial because the doctor gives the nurse permission to do the thing. But the nurse is crucial because the nurse is giving the doctor the boots on the ground. This is what's happening with the patient. You need to know what do you think we need to do. Like there is a symbiotic relationship there that is actually only going to benefit the patient when they are working together because they see different things. They have different perspectives. They have different skill sets and approaches, which gives a much more robust and holistic patient care offering than if it was just a nurse or just a doctor or just a fill in the blank, right? The respiratory right. therapist just cares about the lungs, right? Like whatever the case may be. And so in, in this diverse praxis thing, I, I want to, and I try to overemphasis, overemphasize this. I don't want there to no longer be positions like you have, where there's a, a pastor of a, a large established church. I don't think that that does anyone any good, but how can we partner in a similar way to have these pastors? And maybe they're not just your associates. Maybe they're just pseudo-missionaries in your area. How, do that, how does that collaboration work to better um, equip your saints for service in, in the, the mission field, so to speak, as well as just giving a better picture of how that so-called guerrilla pastor can be supported in the ministries that they're doing? We'll pick up part two of our interview of Pastor Dave Rhodes on our next episode. In it, we dive deeper in what this collaborative partnership could look like. We also dive deeper into Pastor Dave's story and have a frank conversation about the tendency for large churches and their pastors to seek power and influence. And we'll hear about how he himself has dealt with that temptation. This all on the next episode of the Gorilla Pastors Podcast. So stay tuned, and until then, would you consider rating, reviewing, and subscribing as it helps others discover stories of pastors endeavoring to do ministry founded on subversive presence. I have been your host, Josiah, and this has been the Gorilla Pastors Podcast. Thank you for listening.